All right, welcome back. I understand what the ball is going on. Yeah, I In our preparation for a study, we have come to engage in a custom, um, which we hope does not turn into merely a ritual or a religious uh, endeavor. But we have understood that the Bible teaches that we, if we have sin in our life that is unconfessed, sep are separated from God in our fellowship with Him, um, our salvation remains secure in Christ, but our fellowship with God is not uh, in harmony or in agreement. And so as a result of that, Christ has taught through the Word, uh, as expressed in 1 John 1, 9, that we are to confess our sins uh, for restoration of fellowship. The goal then of believer's confession is that restoration of fellowship between the believer and God. However, believer's confession is a part of the growth process designed for, a, for positive believers in God's plan for spiritual maturity. That phrase, positive believers, we're going to use the positive, negative, affirmative um, terms a lot in tonight's study. It deals with making choices either positively or negatively, either affirming or negating um, choices or actions. Um, and as we term these things with the positive, negative, affirmative, um, we'll be actually doing them from a cosmos theos concept. Positive choice is in agreement with cosmos theos. A negative choice is in disagreement with cosmos theos. Uh, a positive reality is in agreement with reality of cosmos theos, God's world system. A negative reality is in disagreement. So we'll be using those terms and we'll we keep them as relating to God's world system versus Satan and companies or humanities. Um, so I, that's just a side note. Um, but with the understanding that Believer's Confession is designed as a part of the growth process for positive believers who are using their free will to positively agree uh, with God's plan for spiritual maturity, the suggestion is then made that spiritual maturity is not measured in uh, the amount of Bible knowledge, amount of prayer time, uh, amount of service in a church, uh, or in the application of any of those things, but in the time which elapses between sin and then fellowship restoration. And spiritual maturity comes down to not so much what you know or how you apply it, but the time in which it takes you to restore yourself to fellowship through believer's confession. The ultimate goal is that that time changes from 15 years to a year, from a year to a month, from a month to a week, from a week to a day to an hour to seconds, so that we get into the process of believer's confession every second of the day. Um, so spiritual maturity is, is measured not by the amount of Bible knowledge or application of it, um, which is typically oftentimes the view, but it's rather in the understanding that that knowledge is inadequate outside of fellowship with God. Therefore, we must take that step of believer's confession to confess our sin, get back in fellowship. And so it's the time between sin and confession that gauges our spiritual maturity. The goal of spiritual maturity is that the believer becomes mature in his spiritual operation. This maturation process is hindered by sin and restored, according to 1 John 1, 9, by believer's confession. We have done this um, for the past few weeks. Um, I'm trying to create a, a little more succinct way of leading us into this, and this is what tonight is a little bit about. A positive believer is one who uses the volitional capabilities granted in God's design of man to make positive, affirmative decisions correlating with God's specified blueprints for cosmos theos. The word righteous uh, identifies blueprints of God's plans. When we're in harmony with God's blueprints for cosmos theos, for his world system, we have righteousness. We're in harmony with righteousness. Believer's confession is akin to a sports ball being bounced upon the ground. <clears throat> As the ball is bounced off the surface of the ground and back in the hand, hands of its handler, 
believer's confession is similar in that the confession rebounds the believer who has trespassed his walk back into fellowship with God. We developed this term rebound then that we'll use in future study to kind of more succinctly identify the believer's confession concept um, of getting back in fellowship for the purpose of creating and emphasizing specifically that it's supposed to be a quick thing. The ball goes down, it comes back up. We sin, we get back in fellowship. We're going to call it rebound um, at this point. So believer's confession from this point on will be known as rebound. And again, the emphasis there is on the quickness that needs to take place in the life of a spiritual mature believer to sin and recognize it and get back in fellowship. It's a rebound concept. Is that why Joe calls it that? That is why Joe Griffin calls it that. And if you guys are ever looking for anyone to, that teaches Bible doctrine or teaches in depth, um, there's a guy named Joe Griffin. And he is, I don't know, he's probably in his 60s or 70s. Um, he, he's very well studied and written. Uh, he was a journalist major. That, yeah, In journalism, you have to take two independent sources to cite um, criteria or facts or information. So he's kind of in, in, brought that into his study of the Word of God. Um, he comes from the original languages. He's a little grammatical historical. Um, him and I, without having studied together, uh, along with my grandfather, uh, we actually agree on a whole lot of stuff that is kind of abnormal just because of the background of the original languages. It's a neat thing to do. He's the one that I listen to, not so much for personal teaching, because I kind of go with Timothy's, or Paul's command to Timothy, that you don't need anyone to teach you. You have the Word of God. Um, it's not bad to listen to others, which is why you guys are here, I'm hoping. So, but but he, he's the one I listen to to um, kind of get my thoughts going um, when I'm looking at certain things and, you know, okay, well, what, what's Joe say about this and where do we agree, where do we disagree, how does he present, that kind of stuff. It's not so much for learning as it is um, kind of fellowship is more of the, the approach. Um, <clears throat> but he terms it rebound, which is why Robin brought him up. Um, and it's, it's the same um, example he used of the sports ball being bounced on the ground. It's a rebound thing. And it comes down to, we're trying to emphasize specifically that the rebound is <clears throat> supposed to be a quick thing. Not you're out of fellowship for a day or a month or a year or even an hour. That it's a, you sin, oh I sinned, I confess that sin, I'm back in fellowship. That it's almost instantaneous. That's the way it should be. So let's take 30 seconds or so, um, and if need be, confessing a sin that may be separating us from God. Um, and I will open in prayer for us, and we'll continue on our study in James chapter 1, verse 17. Father, you are good and merciful and loving. And in your loving kindness, you draw us back to this point where we recognize who you are and who we are and the sin that has 
crossed our path and that we have wandered willingly into. Thank you for believers' confession and for the ability to remain in Christ despite our sin, for the penalty of that sin being dealt with, but yet for allowing the forgiveness of sin to be in the moment of our confession. Thank you for this evening, the chance to once more study your word. May it be clear despite any fog and may it be true despite any human viewpoint that may have interjected its way into the study. Teach us with your Holy Spirit. May we be submitted to you following your will and the plan that you have set up for us to learn and to grow, creating an ability within us to abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're still dealing with faith and action as we look at what true spirituality means in the book of James. Um, again, faith comes from the Greek word pisteos, which means a complete dependency based on response. In the Sunday school lesson I taught yesterday for our, our high schoolers and junior hires, um, we put on our whiteboard a picture of a stick chair. It wasn't three-dimensional, but it, well, actually it was three-dimensional. It was a drafted chair uh, with depth to it, but the we put faith on the backrest of the chair, and then I identified two things. One, the noun form of pisteos, which would be pistis, and one, the verb form of pisteos, which would be uh, pistis. Pisteos is the noun, pistis is the verb. Um, so I just swapped them up in here. That's what caused the confusion. So I identified those things, and then I wrote on the board that they are transitive in nature. A transitive noun and a transitive verb in Koine Greek identifies that there's a transference of responsibility from one party to another object or party. And that's why we have this relationship that we've identified in our slide here that says that pisteos identifies a relationship between two or more objects or persons, persons in which one of the objects or persons is completely dependent upon the other for something or action. In the example of sitting in a chair, we brought out in our lesson uh, in Sunday school yesterday that when we sit in a chair, we are transferring the responsibility of our body to support our weight and stand us up or maintain our uh, position to the chair. The chair now takes over that responsibility of supporting us up, up off the ground. That chair then has to provide the work necessary in order to support us. If the chair doesn't support us and we fall to the ground, then our faith, according to James 2, 14 and 17, as we'll get to someday in the future, uh, or prior to Christ coming, maybe if that happens first, we don't really know. But in that process of sitting in a chair, if we choose to sit in a chair that doesn't support our weight, our faith is said to be without works. And that being under this concept of the transitive noun and transitive verb, that we are transferring the responsibility of our body supporting our weight to the chair to accomplish that work of supporting the weight. And if that chair falters, it didn't do the work necessary for the faith that was depending upon it. Um, so just as a reminder, pisteos is that complete dependency, um, which is based on a response, and that response is under our evaluation and willingness to um, either depend on something or not, based upon how we valued it and evaluated it as being good or worthless. Uh, we've skipped a review of James 1, 14 to 15 tonight. We did that last week. You can look at last week's notes for it. Uh, we'll stick with verse, verses 16 and 17, our review of how to defeat the test. And when we talk about the test, we're referring to the test that's presented in James 1, 14 to 15. James 1, 16 to 17 reads this way, Do not be deceived, my beloved, brother, beloved brethren. 
every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. We learned certain principles relative to defeating the process of testation. One of those being the English phrase, do not be deceived, in verse 16, is more adamantly stop being deceived with non-truth in the original language of the New Testament. Number two, through the present passive participle, planaste, James teaches the end game of the process of testation to be deception. Deception is the whole purpose for the process of testation, for the bait in the trap. It's not to get you to sin. Satan and company's goal is not that. Number three, the individual is deceived by Satan and company through the agency of their dominant lust pattern to disagree with God regarding truth or reality. In other words, cosmos theos versus cosmos diabolos, God's world system versus Satan's world system. The deceit occurs in order to get the individual to agree with cosmos diabolos rather than cosmos theos. Number four, knowledge of these things, that the in-game or the in-game priority of deception and the product of sin being an erroneous reality or truth system allows the believer to combat the test. When we know what is produced through the process of testation, and when we know that it's a, a fake counterfeit system, we're able to choose against it. We're not deceived by it. Number five, furthermore, knowledge that good things and perfect things only come from the source of God creates the ability for the believer to identify good and perfect gifts from Satan and company's counterfeit merchandise. Satan was said to be lifted up by the merchandise of his, of his wares. It's talking about uh, in that verse that Satan's pride was lifted up because of the merchandise he created. Uh, his merchandise is counterfeit to God's, although he is able to produce merchandise. Number six, from the Greek word agathe, James identifies a good thing as possessing natural inherent value. He also, in the same verse, identifies a perfect gift, and this is number seven, as being complete according to its blueprints. It's from the Greek word teleon, which is also the word that is uh, ascribed to the believer becoming mature. We are attempting to be made complete uh, according to the blueprints that God has established. Number eight, knowledge of these truths allows the believer to examine the bait set by Satan and company with the purpose of identifying its inherent value and or its state of completion compared to God's blueprints. Number nine, the combination of this truth with the examination of the bait's source allows the believer to reject that which is worthless, counterfeit, or from any source but God. Number 10. The believer's ability to defeat the test hinges on his willingness to compare the bait to that which comes from the source of God. Number 11. The sun, moon, and stars are given to provide examples of such good things which come from God, them being the proper tools God deemed to govern the day and the night. That's the father of the lights part, yeah, from verse 17b. Number 12, God being light and the light giver sheds light upon that which is counterfeit. 13, by recognizing the source of good things and perfect gifts as being the father of the lights, the believer is able to reflect God's light upon counterfeit merchandise promulgated by Satan and company, thus revealing the attempted deception and the counterfeitness of the merchandise. Promulgated? Brought forth and solicited. like promoted and solicited oh that's a real word it's a fun one too i i almost worked in heterothodasticity at this lecture it was close promulgated uh without a, an actual dictionary definition i i'm using it in the sense of brought forth and solicited 
It's kind of like presented as true and given as true. Although the veracity of its truth isn't necessarily part of the definition. In fact, presented might just be a simple way to look at it. It's like it's, it's more than just presented, it's mm -hmm. like perpetuated or, you know, it's not like, or like the dandelion pummels the heap or something. It kind of puts it off a lot, but that's just my... Like, yeah. This says to promote or make widely known an idea or cause, put a law, decree, and effect into effect by official proclamation. Promulgate. That's what they attempt to do with debate. They attempt to promulgate deception. Number 14. After revealing the counterfeit merchandise with the light of God, the individual is forced to make either a positive decision or negative decision regarding their business dealings with the counterfeit merchandise. Number 15 is a lot of fun, too. Positive volitional rejection of counterfeit merchandise for, for the divine designer label merchandise results in defeat of the test. In other words, rejecting Satan Company's counterfeit merchandise for God's divine designer label results in defeat of the test. Yeah, I did have to smile when we said that. Divine designer label. It did, did take me about five minutes to figure out how to turn that. <laughs> I couldn't think of the word designer, of all things. <laughs> Alright, so as James attempts to further bolster the foundation upon which the believer is able to defeat the process of testation, he engages in a statement regarding the immutability of God himself. In doing so, James plants the diaspora firmly on a foundation designed for exposing the mechanics of defeating the process of testation, and that foundation is undergirded by the immutable, unchanging character of God. Yeah. The sentence should read, which is undergirded by the immutable heterosodesticity character of God. <laughs> or lack of heterosodesticity with the character of God. Heterosodesticity, as I was taught, means a change in volatility over time. However, it's a statistics term, and that seems to be the only definition now out there. A change in volatility over time. Volatility meaning, in a chemical perspective? Yeah, it's an alchemy. How can we turn? Meaning that it, it becomes it changes more or less volatile. Yeah. Volatile means that it evaporates, right? The evaporation. Like a volatile chemical well, quickly disperses <coughs> into the atmosphere. Disperses or go or right. it just change changes in a volatile manner. Yeah. It actually is used as a stock market in many ways. Is the market was volatile today. That kind of thing. It goes up yeah. and down, fluctuates just as random. Not random, but uh, a lot of different actions. So that, that's where it was interjected. I took it out for the sake of clarity. Because you were just showing off your fancy words. No, I've been trying to use that for years. And it's a very hard word to use in a sentence because it's very limited as to how you can use it. And I found a place where I could use it, but I didn't want to use it. No, this is not about me. <laughs> See, you're already impressed. I didn't want to use it. All right, that leads us to our study tonight on the third part of James 1.17. The whole verse reads, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The third part we will be focused on is right here. With whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Again, that's the New American Standard Version. Uh, if you have another version, I'm sorry. I prefer the NASB myself uh, for English, and we'll go Greek from there. The Greek phrase, Parahoukenepareleges, is the phrase that we have translated into English on the New American Standard as with whom there is not change. James uses the preposition para, 
which literally means beside, to create a prepositional, prepositional phrase regarding the character of God. When we studied in verse 7, the meaning of para was beside, and it still is. That is its basic literal definition. However, with different cases, it its literal definition is used almost idiomatically um, to mean something else, or its message that it promotes is something else. Uh, the meaning which is established is different with the case that para syntactically relates with. So we may have beside when we're talking about a, a spatial location. Uh, we may have with when we're talking about an association with something. Uh, literally, it means beside, and we can translate it literally as beside. And hopefully, we can come down to the understanding, but in, if we have a proper Greek mindset, we can do that literal translation and understand what it means in the original language. Sometimes we don't see that that side of the coin when we bring it into English. Um, so we're going to kind of work a little bit differently than I typically do tonight. Typically I put it literal and leave it literal and just let the chips fall where they may. Um, tonight for the sake of harmony and for the sake of the clarity of the teaching, I've given you the literal definition and then we're going to move into what it means in its application. Um, this is just part of the problem with Bible translation. Why do you have so many different translations? How do you translate the Bible literally? You translate it word for word, you translate it, its meaning literally, that kind of thing. Um, so bear with me, I uh, do not like doing this, um, it just it seemed necessary tonight. Para is used with ho, which is a relative pronoun, such as our English terms what, who, or whom, and it's used to refer to two patras from 17b, therefore we have brought it in as whom. So whom is a substituted word. It's a pronoun that's substituted for the noun patros, and specifically the father. It's the father of the lights that we're talking about. So with the father of the lights, there is not change would be an adequate understanding of what the third part of 17 is talking about. And the pronoun is, again, is designed to reduce redundancy. Um, however, since we're looking at just that one phrase, we're going to put the father in there every now and then just to create the understanding of what we're talking about. So with the father... There is not change. Because ho is locative in case, its influence upon para results in an association being made about the father. By association, we are referring to something that is in association with another thing. Uh, when, in a, when we are talking about a law firm, we have lawyers and we have associates. We have those who work with them. They are beside them, if you will. But they are associated with them. They are working as if they are their representative of the lawyer that they are working for. Um, so we have that kind of similar association with para. The phrase para ho results in a literal translation of beside whom. Again, that's the literal translation. So literally we get beside whom there is not change. You may be able to start seeing the, the, the aspect of what's being said here. Um, for the sake of clarity, let's look at what it means. Um, as is typically the case with a locative case, it identifies the location or the, the boundaries in which an association is being made. Um, as a result, the literal translation of beside whom yields a meaning of in association with whom. So, <clears throat> By placing something beside God, it's associated with Him. That won't hold true for everything. Like by putting Lucifer with God, that doesn't or next to God doesn't associate Lucifer with God. <coughs> Q 
key thing here too being the concept of in association with that word in that preposition still referencing the location in which the association is made so it's in the the father of the lights that this association is made in association with whom there is not change in the father there is not change James is making a distinction regarding the character of two patros by declaring in association with the father there is not change but James's message is much stronger and more emphatic than that because of his usage of uk any. Uk is an emphatic native negative particle which is used in summary negation. Okay, before we define summary negation, there's two options here basically for uh, James to use in order to negate what's coming next. And by negate we mean to oppose it. So he could have used with whom may any parlage. Uh, there isn't any change. But he chose to use uk which comes from u, and it's the more emphatic of the two. <clears throat> it's designed as a summary negation. Okay, so in other words, if we were to have a whole discourse on this statement, like we are doing, is that there is no change with God. He doesn't flip-flop, he doesn't um, change his mind, he, his character stays the same. We could go through a whole list of these things. But in the end, we'd come back and say there is no change. This is our summary of the negation of what's going on. Summary negation considers all the facts and establishes them through a summary as being contrary to reality or untrue. In other words, Uk closes the book on a subject by emphatically declaring it to be not true or to not be the case. It is the stronger of the two major Greek negatives. Greek grammarians Dana and Manti describe Uk in this way in their manual grammar of the Greek New Testament on page 264. I chose them because they also if you look at the little asterisk down there, they also include a quote from Moulton and Robertson's in their um, grammar as well. So we get three different Greek grammarians all saying the same basic thing, uh, which the harmony is a great thing to see. Now, a little note on the quote, I have added brackets with the kappa added to it in two places. That's because ook is, um, is used when the word following it, which in our... Oops, which in our case begins with an epsilon, which is a vowel. In that case, uk is used. It's part of the phonetic pronunciation of it. You don't want u any, you want uk any. If it was a consonant, like if we had uk, if we had paralegae following it directly, we'd have u paralegae. So with, with this negative, the root word is u, but if it has a consonant, a, a word following it, which begins with a consonant, you'd have u. With a word following that begins with an uh, vowel you have ook and it's there to break it up yeah, yeah it's like a and a same concept yeah good point <clears throat> so this is what dana and manti describe ook or actually oo to be and i've added that kappa in, in uh, brackets just to carry it through with ours ook is the particle used in summary negation it is the stronger of the two negatives and then molten describes it as the proper negative for the statement of a downright fact then robertson comes in and says, Uk denies the reality of an alleged fact. It is the final, clear-cut, point-blank, negative, objective, final. Not black, but white. Emphatic. Clear-cut. You can't argue with it. This says a lot about God's character. If God's character does not change, according to James, he's saying, there is no doubt in my mind. This is a done deal. You can't argue with it. It does not change. Case closed. By using Uk, James is emphatically declaring the lack of existence of something in association with God the Father. James uses uk to negate ene. Ene 
any is a present active indicative verb whose subject is the father. As a present verb, it identifies continuous action, an action which does not stop. It continues on. As an active verb, it identifies the subject, who is the father, to patros, is performing the action to any to exist in this state of being. As an indicative verb, it identifies reality. This really is the case. So there is not, there continuously is not in reality change in God. It literally means any, literally means there is, in the sense of I me, which we've looked at before as, under, and understood it as being, uh, I can find my mouse here, there he goes, as being a state of existence, or the existence of something in a state of existence. Um, and this word any refers and has a similar concept that literally meaning there is, with the same sense of I me, it incurs the understanding of there exists in the state of being. <coughs> so up to this point, James is developing his foundation's foundation with the understanding that in association with the Father of the Lights, there emphatically does not exist a specific state of being. That state of being which does not exist, James identifies as paralege. Paralege is a noun which means change from one state into another. Being used with uk, any, paralege is, is declaring a statement concerning the character and attributes of the Father who created, and thus is the father of, the sun, moon, and stars. The sun, the stars, the moon change and are subject to change largely due to their orbital paths. I had a hard time trying to bring this concept in because the, the terminology here is, is very much uh, astronomical, uh, referring to these stars moving and orbiting and changing in, in their cycle of life and and I'm bursting all that stuff. There's very much a concept of looking at the stars, which solidifies what we taught last week about the Father of the Lights, referring to the Father of the one who or the Father being the one who created the sun, moon, and stars. There's now no doubt in my mind that that is the reference being made. Last week I said that I would not dogmatically teach it. That has changed now. I will. I, last week I taught it with a grain of salt, saying that God is light and He is the Father of light because He is light. Light comes from him because he is light. But now there is no doubt in my mind that the father of the lights is specifically referring to the father being the one who created the sun, the moon, the stars. That is partly because of Perlage, partly because of um, the next three Greek words that come out because they all refer to astronomical terms, referring to the stars, their paths, and the eclipse, all that kind of stuff is in the imagery used in these words. So. I will now dogmatically teach that, um, you now dogmatically can oppose that, and we will dogmatically have a dogmatic conversation. <laughs> let's, let's not? Okay. Let's not. <laughs> we digress. Or maybe it's just me, I don't know. <laughs> so the sun, the stars, the moon change and are subject to change largely due to their orbital paths. As, as the moon orbits the earth, and the earth orbits the sun, we get this change in the, the cycle of the moon. Perhaps this is why James chose this imagery, is that every culture, every people can see the moon changing. And every culture, every people can see the moon as a good thing that governs the night. That when it's full, you can see and use. And the stars you can use for navigation. 
at nighttime when you can't see where the sun is rising and setting. So there's definitely some major corresponding here going on to the sun, moon, and stars. But because the moon orbits the earth and the earth orbits the sun, there are times when the moon is dark because it reflects the sun's light. Stars don't have that issue. Stars themselves produce light, just like the sun. Perhaps that's why science has linked the sun as a star. However, the Bible clearly teaches it is its own entity. That's another thing we can have a dogmatic conversation about later. So, while the sun, stars and moon change and are subject to change because of their orbital paths and because of the life cycle of the stars, there is emphatically no change associated with the father of those lights, such as James's declaration. The sun, the stars, the moon change, but the father who created them does not. Case closed. <clears throat> James asserts emphatically to the diaspora that there is not any change in character associated with the father of the sun, moon, and stars. While they are subject, while the sun, moon, and stars are subject to travel and his light, he himself is not. He is not subject to light. While the moon, sun, and stars, while their forms and surfaces change and fluctuate, God himself does not. There is not change in the character of God. He himself does not change. Uk eni. When John the Baptist was asked whether he was the Messiah, he responded with the term uk. No, case closed. Could have said nay. Could have said maybe. That would have been English, they didn't have that then. So he said uk. No, case closed. Again, that's just on the emphasis part. Now, <clears throat> in the English, in the New American Standard, we have this term or shifting shadow. Um, it's linked to God's character and the father of the lights' character. And the concept of a shifting shadow as translated by the New American Standard is an attempt to provide an understanding of the Greek words tropes aposkiosma, which is delightful to say. Aposkiosma, you can say it later, or in your head, or out loud right now, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was fun. However, without its literal understanding, the depth of tropes aposkiosma is left undiscovered. It's not merely referring to a shadow. There is a shadow concept in play. Because of the logical disjunctive connection, hey, hey, James connects two logical statements while at the same time disconnecting them from equivalent meaning. Okay, it's a logical disjunctive conjunction. We have a disjunctive conjunction. It's kind of an interesting thing. <clears throat> the disjunctive part, again, refers to disconnecting them from equivalencies. It's not this and this, which are equal things. It's this but this, or this or this. In other words, James is not saying that there exists both no change and both no shifting shadow, but rather he is identifying that there is neither any change nor shifting shadow in the character of God. Both are true statements, but they are not equivalent to each other. God does not change is not equivalent to God cannot be eclipsed by any other thing. That said, trophe aposkiosma my editing skills have drastically failed me tonight is a reference to an orbiting object which is eclipsed in its orbit from light by another orbiting object. 
In application to the character of God, the distinction can be made then that God's character cannot be eclipsed by another object. There is neither any change in God's character, nor can his character be eclipsed by any other person or object. The distinction being made there is that his character is supreme. Not sovereign, but supreme. No person's character can overcome his. No person's character can eclipse his. No one can hide his character. He is who he is. We may not see his character because of either sin in our life or flat out rejection of him being God and our application of that in our lives, but we cannot eclipse God's character with our own. Lucifer cannot eclipse God's character with his. God's character is supreme. Uke is a part of that, yes. So there is neither any change in God's character, that is, he is immutable, his character does not change, nor can his character be eclipsed by any other person or any other object that exists. That may largely be due to the fact that God created everything else that exists. The identification of James, then, is that in association with the Father of the Lights, there is not change in form, nor is there any eclipsing of his character by another. God is God alone, and God does not change in who he is. He remains the same. Yet, while he remains the same, his required responsibilities of humanity may differ. This is evident in the dispensations concerning the age of the law and the age of the church. In other words, Israel was required to do different things and were held responsible for certain things, that those belonging to the age of the church, following the resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit as an indwelling agent, have different responsibilities. We are not under the law, but we are under the law of grace. Different responsibilities given by God for different purposes, yet he remains the same in his character. James's declaration in the end of verse 17 is that God does not change. He is immutable. Because of this, James is asserting that the diaspora and believers everywhere can be confident that only good things and perfect gifts come from God and will always only come from Him. He will not someday begin producing counterfeit or less than valuable merchandise Himself. He is who He is always. As a result, His merchandise will be good and complete always. This is equivalent to saying Gucci will not produce purses that are knockoffs. We moved into the secular realm. God will not produce counterfeit merchandise or merchandise that is not up to his standards. Therefore, as believers face the process of testation, they are to consider the source of the bait in the trap, comparing it to those things which God produces, which are declared to possess natural, inherent value, and are being crafted and are and exist as having been crafted to completeness as according to in accordance with their blueprints. In doing so, James declares that the believer can identify counterfeit merchandise from divine designer label merchandise at which point the believer must decide either positively or negatively regarding the counterfeit merchandise. Positively would be a choice to reject it. Negatively would be a choice to accept it. Again, the positive or negative labels are given in respect and relationship to cosmos theos rather than cosmos diabolos. As James identifies in 117c, believers can rest assured of God's merchandise remaining naturally and inherently valuable, as well as complete in its craftsmanship because of God's character and the absolute fact that he does not change. Therefore, his merchandise will not change. God is always the same, and so the believer can rest confident upon the knowledge that God will always produce and provide good things and complete gifts. We almost entered into a study about the character of God. 
uh, which if you get a chance, read Noah and read the following, following the flood and when Noah lands and God establishes a covenant with Noah, he puts something up as a sign of his character. New King James, or King James calls it a token of his character. It consists of seven colors, which we know as Roy G. Biff. It's also our color spectrum or light spectrum. And in those colors, you can trace back historically and literarily, you can identify each of the characteristics of God that have been evident in history as uh, with those colors being symbolic of those characteristics and in literary form. We almost did it tonight. We almost did it next week. There's still a chance that we might do it next week. <laughs> Let me identify real quickly an interesting correlation to today's society, and specifically the homosexual world, in relationship to this rainbow. If you look at the homosexual rainbow, it has six colors. Always. We clearly see seven in the spectrum. The rainbow itself occurs when what happens scientifically? Water or light passes through water and is refracted, refracted and changes form. And thus we see its character. What happened? It comes out different wavelengths. Right, it comes out different wavelengths that we can see. So what happens when God came in a different form? The Bible says that physical birth is water birth. When God the Father sent his Son, God is light, go figure, sent his Son into the world, into physical form, which is water birth, we were able then to see God and see Him represented on earth. That's goosebumpy right there. The seven colors of the rainbow, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. There's one missing on the homosexual rainbow. Red is love. Orange is omnipotence. Um, yellow is omniscience. Green is eternalness. The fact that He never had a beginning, never had an end. Uh, right. Green, blue. blue is righteousness. Indigo refers to his omnipresence. And violet refers to sovereignty. The one that is lacking on the homosexual rainbow is that last one, violet. Sovereignty. Go to Romans chapter 1. identifies what happens when someone chooses not to recognize God as sovereign God. Homosexuality is in that list. It is unbelievable. And that's more than goosebumps. Those are like bald eagle bumps. Bald eagles bigger? I don't know. There is a definite correlation to our rainbow. God gave it as a sign to Noah that he would never flood the earth again, and it was a sign of his character. He said, when you doubt that, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is my character that backs this promise. There are over 7,000 promises in the Word of God given to believers that are backed up by the character of God. The fact that we can choose to believe in divine designer label merchandise and accept that rather than counterfeit merchandise is backed up by the character of God. Everything we have in the Word of God hinges on the character of God. Its veracity, its application, everything comes down to the character of God. When you see a rainbow, I guarantee you'll never look at it the same again. It is amazing what it represents. We have the chance to see the character of God in physical form and if you notice, there's a rainbow around the sun. <laughs> to which I will leave for a later discussion. There's always a rainbow around the sun. Sometimes you can see it, sometimes we can't. But there's always a rainbow that encircles the sun. Precisely. 
No one can look at God and live. No, I'm not saying God's the son. Before we digress much further, let, let it suffice to say, the character of God backs up the promises that we have in Scripture. Yeah. Knowing that God doesn't change. Yeah, heretics, heretics. <laughs> Knowing that God does not change allows us to be confident that his promises will always hold up to being true and being fulfilled. If God were to change and had made a promise to us of eternal life, and then say, No, I'm changing that. Now you gotta work for it. You gotta earn it. We would start earning it, hopefully, being obedient to God. But God does not change. That's what James is saying. There is no chance, no way, case closed. Don't even think about it again. He stays the same forever. He is immutable. There's no transmutation. There's a lack of heterosidasticity. God remains the same. You know, how matter of what, however you want to say it. Summer negation, ook, ook. Ook, ook. <laughs> <laughs>